Hi there, I'm Lori Hellman, a mom to an incredible young adult son on the autism spectrum. My goal when creating the Living the Sky Life podcast three years ago was that the content of each episode bring hope, connection, and some valuable takeaways to each listener. The special needs parenting village is large, so you should never feel like you have to travel this journey alone. If you haven't already, please connect with me through my website, Facebook page, or Instagram account. And let's keep the conversation going after each episode airs. If you are enjoying the podcast and are listening on Apple iTunes, please leave a rating and written review and share Living the Sky Life with others. Thanks again for tuning in and subscribing to season three of Living the Sky Life. Thank you for tuning back into Living the Sky Life. I always appreciate the opportunity when I get to speak with therapists, particularly speech language pathologists, or anyone involved in communication and apraxia and all the ways in which we struggle sometimes to get our non-speaking children um, communicating to us. So I was honored when Rebecca Robbins reached out to me and offered to be a guest on Living the Sky Life. So that is my guest today. Rebecca is a speech-language pathologist who has spent the bulk of her career helping children, young adults, and families impacted by autism. She has worked in various settings over the course of her 16-year career, including a private school for children with autism, early intervention and preschool agency work, as well as a public school. She is now the proud owner of MindShaper SLP, where she provides one-on-one speech therapy, executive functioning, and life skills coaching for individuals and social skills groups. In addition, Rebecca provides parent online training programs and consultation services. Rebecca is trained in ABA, VBA, relationship development techniques, and is a certified Hanan Center More Than Words practitioner. She has extensive knowledge and experience in the areas of autism, apraxia, executive functioning skills, feeding therapy, mindfulness, augmentative communication, assistive technology, and parent training. Rebecca currently lives in Pennsylvania with her fiancé, Mark, is passionate about theater arts, and performs in and directs various productions each year. Please enjoy my informative conversation with Rebecca Robbins. So welcome back to another episode of Living the Sky Life. Today, I have the opportunity of speaking with a very, very um, incredible uh, speech-language pathologist, Rebecca Robbins from MindShaper SLP. So welcome to the podcast, Rebecca. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, I love so much about what you are doing, especially using a lot of virtual, um, since that's pretty much what our world has come to these days, doing a, doing a lot of virtual trainings and offering a lot of things to parents to really partner with you. So I mm-hmm. want to get into all of that, but um, kind of to back up, you have over 15 years experience as a speech language pathologist. Mm-hmm. You specialize predominantly in autism, apraxia, and ADHD. Is that correct? I don't want to yes. <laughs> yes. discount it's- any of the other specialties. Yes, no, it's primarily autism, Mm -hmm. Um, but yes, with that has come work with apraxia and ADHD because they're common co-occurring diagnoses. Yeah, so when you went into the speech language pathology path um, of study, was this something that you were drawn to as far as working with children and and young adults on the spectrum, or did you just come to to love this population and to kind of just fall into this specialization that you have? Yeah. So I did not, when I entered my college program, know that I wanted to work with autism specifically, but I was fortunate enough that when I had to do my first practicum placement, I think it was actually my student teaching placement. I was placed in a local private school for children with autism. And I, it was just the perfect fit for me. And I just completely um, just resonated with that population. It just became a very strong passion of mine. And um, I worked, once I got my degree, I worked at that um, school for a little while afterwards. And then I went to agency work and was getting a lot of autism cases on my caseload then. And then I went back to the other site of that autism school Um, and it just, 
it just ended up being a perfect fit. And without me even realizing it, I think that I had a knack for working with or connecting with people on the spectrum from a very early age. My cousin was um, diagnosed as having Asperger's when it was still a diagnosis, Mm -hmm. not until he was in his 20s. And I, when I was at my first placement, I remember, and learning more about what autism is, mm-hmm. <clears throat> excuse me, I thought to myself, I was like, wow, this sounds really similar to my experience with my cousin. And then a few weeks later, we heard that he had gotten that diagnosis. And when we were kids, I was really the one cousin that was able to connect with him and the most. And I was just was the most accepting of him and he was the most excited to see me. So I mm-hmm. guess I've just like was born with a natural knack for it. <laughs> I definitely think there's an element of that with all therapists because I mean, besides the patience factor, I just know even just mothering my son, like it's, it's definitely not easy. It's, it's not easy to continue day after day to, um, you know, just wear the money, many hats that we do with being their parent, but also their therapist. Mm. And, you know, I know that you're a big believer that parents are the experts on their children. And I agree with you. I mean, there are little subtle things about my son, Skylar, that I know that, you know, that he makes sounds or does certain things. And I know what it means. And it might take somebody a while to figure that out if I didn't educate them on that. So can you talk a little bit about, that's a huge part of your platform and about, Mm -hmm. you know, the way that you help and coordinate with parents. Can you talk a little bit about how you educate and teach parents to um, turn everyday activities and interactions into learning opportunities? Sure. Yeah. So I do um, offer parent consultation sessions, and that is me working one-on-one with the parent directly, where I really am talking about the the situations that they're needing support with in the home and in the community, and giving them strategies and suggestions as to how to reach their family goals and their goals for their child in the home and the community. But it's also a big part of the private therapy that I do with my families. So a lot of that looks like, and a lot of great speech therapists do this as well, looks like me just communicating with the parents and sending them materials at home and saying, hey, this is what we're working on in speech. This is how you can carry it over at home and giving specific suggestions of how to work it into the daily routine. So for example, I have a program called Buddy Group, which is a social skills language group that I run in virtually for PA in New York. And then in person, I have in-person classes in New York and parent training and the parents get homework. The kids don't get homework. The parents get homework for the class. And so if we're working on a conversational strategy, I'll say, this is a great game to play at the dinner table called bounce the question. And I describe how they would as a family incorporate what the kids are working on in the group into that. It looks like everybody in the family is participating in that activity during dinner time. So it's an activity that they would already be engaging in. And it's also teaching the child that dinner is also a social time, which is, so it can be challenging for some individuals on the spectrum. And so just finding ways to work, to give tips and suggestions of what I'm doing in my therapy sessions and carrying it over to the normal everyday routines, because that's when it's going to generalize best. And that's when the parents are going to have the easiest time incorporating it as well. So you, do you, um, do all of your sessions, do you prefer to do them one-on-one or can you effectively do a therapy session with a child um, via the computer? I mean, do you, can you kind of establish a relationship one-on-one with them and then, you know, input some of the virtual lessons throughout, you know, COVID or just when there's situations where you can't actually physically be there? Yeah. Are they successful learning with you Mm -hmm. and working with you over the computer? Okay. Yeah. I'm doing all of my, my work virtually right now. Um, so many of my students that I have, well, not many, some of the students that I'm working with privately right now, I was seeing them in person before Mm -hmm. COVID and then it switched to virtual. So I did have that opportunity to establish 
that rapport in person with them. But then I have many individuals that are on my caseload now that started with me virtually, and they've been virtual clients of mine the whole time. And one of them is as young as preschool age. He was four, now he's going turning five. So you definitely have to be a lot more creative with the mm-hmm. little guys to keep it engaging. And um, that's, I luckily discovered the joys of the green screen. So I um, stumbled upon a Facebook group for during the COVID for speech pathologists using the green screen in therapy and learned a lot of skills and tricks of how to utilize the green screen where you can make things look like they're disappearing or reappearing out of thin air and things like that. Yeah. So it almost makes that virtual session for the younger child seem more like an interactive TV show than, than a speech therapy lesson, Mm -hmm. so to speak. So that is very helpful incorporating things like that. And um, many of my other private clients are a little bit older, but I, I kind of pride myself as having just a natural knack of keeping my therapy fun and engaging. And that is something that I carry over into my virtual sessions as well. And it's, it takes a little bit of thinking outside the box sometimes. Um, And it was especially challenging when I transitioned my social skills groups to virtual because that really, you think of a social skills group, you really think it has to be in person to work. And we've really had great success with, I call it buddy group with our buddy groups working virtually, but it's really been me having to get creative as to how to keep that fun, interactive, engaging component alive. So it is possible. That being said, I think that there are some children that the Zoom, the virtual platform just really isn't the most ideal, that Mm -hmm. they really are going to benefit the most from in-person. That being said, if you're in a position where you have to do virtual with a, with a child like that or an individual like that, I think that's when the parent training component becomes even more important. And it's more so that you as the therapist are coaching the parent to do what you would do with the child in person mm-hmm. so that you're really... Um, teaching the parent how to be the therapist in that moment and run that therapy activity, which can actually have even more beneficial components because now you as the parent know how to do that activity and you can carry it over more than just that 30 minute session Mm -hmm. with your child at the home. I think that's one of the hardest things with just therapy in general over the years, whether it's speech or other, other types is that I feel so much like there's a disconnect between what Skylar might be doing in his sessions or at his therapy center or things. And even though we have a behavioral therapist that rotates in once a week and just kind of fills us in um, on what they're doing, it's even down to the minute things of the way they say something to him. Um, Like if it's like all done or are you finished? It's so important that parents align with the therapists and exactly how they're doing something or what they're saying with not much, you know, variation to it, I guess, because can't that cause a lot of confusion for, for our kids? Yeah. Yes. Consistency between home and school. I was actually listening to a talk by Temple Grandin a couple of weeks ago, and she was saying how important the consistency between home and school is, especially when you're coming, when it comes to managing behaviors. Mm -hmm. Um, When you have to be a little bit careful about playing into the need to have a child respond to only one way of saying something. Mm -hmm. So, because we do want our child, our children, or our, you know, the individuals in our lives with autism to be flexible enough to respond to something that, so for example, if, if they know, only know how to say their name, when someone says, what's your name? Um, then if someone they meet on the street asks them in a slightly different way, they might not be able to say their name. Yep. Uh-huh. So for generalization purposes, it is important to train the child to understand similar phrases. But yes, what you're saying is very true that it, 
like my favorite work that I got to do in my career was EI, early intervention, because you're in the family's home and the parent is part of the session and the whole point. And the one of the counties that I worked in, we weren't even really allowed to bring in our own materials because they wanted, they didn't want us to leave and take the fancy toy with us so that the parent wasn't, wasn't able to carry over what we did. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. But what happens is there's such a big push when these kids are young for the families to be involved. And then when they hit school age, the, the focus turns to an academic shift and that home support is not there as much or hardly at all, unfortunately, sometimes but the need for it doesn't go away. So that's one of the reasons why I've built my practice the way that I do. But yeah, I think it's really important for therapists to really, even if they're ending a session five minutes early to bring a parent in and say, hey, this is what we worked on. This is how you can do it. I used to, in when I worked in the school district and I didn't have you know, the luxury of bringing a parent into a session, especially with my students that had iPads as communication devices and they're bringing them home, I would make video recordings of things we were doing in our session and send home the materials that the parents needed to do that activity, or even just to show like, hey, look at like this great thing your child did in speech today. And I'd write in the home book note, this is what we worked on in speech. I made a video for you, check it out. So any ways that we can really take that work because we don't want the child to be able to perform the skill in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. We want them to be able to do it in the classroom, in the home, in the community. And the way that that happens, especially when generalization is difficult for individuals on the spectrum, is to train the other adults in that child's life to do what you're doing. And I think it's important too, like you said, to bring the parents in at the end and maybe mm-hmm. even demonstrate a little bit of how you were doing it or whatever mm-hmm. and include the child in it and mm-hmm. say, you know, show your mom or dad, like, you know, whatever, so they can help you do this at home and show them how successful you were and mm-hmm. to talk about the child in front of them in a very positive way, like, you know, yeah. to praise them instead of, I mean, we've been on both sides of it and we've had therapists that are like, the time is up and they bring them out to the car or whatever. And they're like, he did a really good job. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> you know, and then I ask questions and it's, it's just kind of like their time is up and they're done and they move on to the next client and Skylar's mm-hmm. nonverbal. So I can't ask him, you know, yeah, tell me what you did and how can I help? It's just, it's a series of back and forth emails and, you know, explanations that probably could have been handled in five minute visual, you know, yeah. if I could have just watched. So yeah, I agree. I agree. And to your point of what you were saying of, you know, certain terminology to use, like, or the way to phrase something, even just little tidbits of information like that, like, oh, I say it like this with him. And this is why I do it and explaining the rationale behind why I phrase something that way. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I use a lot in my therapy um, sessions is something called declarative language. And I love to teach parents about what declarative language is because it's not taught very often, but I really find it to be so valuable in getting my students to be more engaged with me and to say spontaneous novel communication. So the only way to really teach a parent to do that is if you have conversations with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, one of your big initiatives, um, since I mentioned my son is nonverbal is nonverbal, no more. Mm -hmm. Um, can you explain kind of who that's geared to and some of the details around the program? Sure. It's an online course and lifetime membership that is geared towards for parents that have, um, children that are minimally verbal or nonverbal. And it is teaching them my structured system of hand cues that I use to prompt speech production and also the the therapy protocol that I use to that I have used over the years to teach my nonverbal children how to produce speech. So I developed it in the trenches basically by having nonverbal students on my caseload and um, there was one little guy that was on my caseload and 
let's just say his name was Johnny. For the longest time, I had a folder in my filing cabinet that said Johnny Protocol <laughs> because it was the system that I came up with to teach him how to talk. He was nonverbal. He spent the first four months of our time together crying. <laughs> Basically, yeah. From like, I would go to pick him up from the classroom. It was a small school, but the whole walk from the classroom to the speech therapy room was just tears. And then eventually we were able to move into him imitating speech sounds and he did learn how to speak. And then I would try that same protocol again with other nonverbal students that came on to make caseload and it was working again and again and again. So it became this very predictable protocol that I could rely upon. So I just wanted to turn that into a online program for parents because it's, I would be teaching the parents and the paraprofessionals and the special educators right along with the student, why I would be training them to do what I was doing in the therapy room. And that was part of why I was so successful was because I had not just myself, but I had the teachers, the paraprofessionals and the parents using these hand cues and doing the structured practice and everything. And so I knew it wasn't something that could only be done by a speech therapist. Anybody could learn how to do it. So my, um, my want to create this course was to give parents the ability to have a system of helping their child to talk right in their own home. So it's um, seven modules to get the child talking is like an acronym. So for each of the modules, and we go through learning how to set up the environment in your home, how to set aside the time for structured speech practice. I teach the actual hand cues. The, I divide the speech sounds into um, three different sets of sounds. So there's the early developing sounds, later developing sounds, and advanced consonant sounds. And the bulk of the, the course focuses on the early developing sounds, but there's, as you go on in the course, you also learn how to cue the later and the advanced consonant sounds. But I find that with nonverbal and minimally verbal children, they really do need that intense work on those early developing consonant sounds. And when they start to get a handle on those, it kind of is like a snowball effect where it becomes easier and easier to say the other sounds. So this is a program that could be for um, a child that has autism with associated apraxia or nonverbal autism, or it could be for a child that has apraxia. And um, I teach the not just how to promote the, the production of the speech sounds, but also once you get some speech sound production, how to turn that into functional communication. Even if your child is only saying a sound, how can we turn that sound into a request? So let's say your, your child is only saying the mm sound right now. Okay, when your child wants milk, you're gonna have him say mm for milk. Yeah, mm, milk, milk, this is milk. Say mm, when they say mm, you give them the milk. So they're starting to pair the sound with the item that it goes with if they were to say the whole target word and teaching how to um, use those approximations to teach new words and and it's I turned it into a lifetime membership because I realized that this is a marathon, not uh -huh. a sprint, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> as you know. So um, originally it was a 14 week course and that was like two weeks per module. And that just was kind of a rapid pace. So I wanted the families that come into that program to really have full on support for six months and then carried over like monthly support after that so that while they continue to work and their child continues to develop their abilities to, to produce speech, they still have that continued support. That makes sense. I mean, there's, yeah. there's a lot to unpack there. And I guess, you know, and um, hopefully this is a not a loaded question or a hard question. But, you know, with my experience with my child, which is unique, every child is unique, um, of him being 18, and he's never really said a sound. I've, all the years of um, 
I've labeled everything, even in his baths, I would say, washing your arm. And then I would, I've taken his hand and held it up to my mouth so he can feel mm-hmm. the vibration when I say mom or different words. I've tried, I feel like everything, and I'm sure that I haven't, I'm sure there's more. Um, but for a child that's older um, in their mm-hmm. teens or a, even a young adult at this point, mm-hmm. that's completely nonverbal and um, has demonstrated I guess in my opinion, again, just with my situation, Skylar seems to demonstrate that he's he may never talk. He may not mm-hmm. have sounds or words and he may communicate in other methods. Mm-hmm. What would be the recommendation from a speech therapist on like the best way to support him and to continue thriving and developing communication methods with him? Uh, yeah, so I think as a child gets older, we want to shift our our therapy goals to be more functional and mm-hmm. what's going to enable him to be as independent as possible. So I think at his age, 18, um, it's not that you have to abandon the work on the sound production, but it wouldn't be necessarily the highest priority of therapy. Mm -hmm. So at that point, you want to focus on getting him to be more fluent in using alternative forms of communication so that he can get his wants and needs met, so that he can navigate in the community, and so that other people can understand him. Um, So that would be my recommendation is that the speech therapy should focus on those sorts of targets. So something that would be really important to work on for a child that age is them being able to state their name, give them some way to state their name, their phone number, and their address in case, God forbid, they get lost or they need help. Teach them to the type, you know, find how to find a police officer. Or if you're in the mall, take them to the information desk first and foremost, like this is where you go. If you need help, if you lose mommy, you need help, you come here sort of thing. Um, those sorts of things that are really safety issues would be Mm -hmm. really, really important if that's not a skill that they're able to do yet. And other than that, it is, you want to focus on really getting their wants and needs met, maybe work on how they can communicate how they're feeling inside. If they're not feeling like if they're sick or not feeling well or in pain, Mm -hmm. Um, things of that nature. So you really want to focus more on what's functional for them in their life and how they can be the most independent. Is there, I guess, taking a step back to for the Uh younger ones that you're Mm -hmm. working um, on sounds and things like that. Is there a point at which um, parents, like if we're using PECs with our kids and combining some things like we're trying to get sounds out of them but in the meantime we also are implementing pictures so that they can identify what they want to eat or things like that if they're struggling with the verbalization part mm-hmm. do you get to a point as their as their vocalization improves that you scale back on like pictures or AAC or things like that that they're using to try to create a balance so that they're not reliant a hundred percent on communicating with pictures if they do have the ability to make sounds and you're seeing some of that apraxia kind of fall down a little bit and they're able to, you know, develop communication. Uh, Cause we just never know, you know, I don't know when to mm-hmm. discontinue those things or right. if we should well, do both. I think it's important to know that using alternative communication is not going to hinder speech and language development. Okay. And there's a difference. I think it's also important to know that there's a difference between speech and language. Speech is the actual motor ability to produce your speech sounds. Language is how well you understand what other people are saying to you, how well you can express the thoughts and feelings in your own head, how you put your words together, like understanding of syntax and grammar, understanding the meanings of words, that's all language. So what can happen is you want to find a balance of, because sometimes the language skills will develop at a rate that's faster than the motor skills can keep up with, even if the child 
is starting to be able to gain some control over their speech musculature and they're able to start saying some sounds, but their speech sound repertoire might be limited. So you don't want that limited speech sound repertoire to, to hinder the amount that they will be able to express language wise. Mm -hmm. So when I would have a student like that on my caseload, I would kind of devote a certain portion of the session to the actual speech production because with with apraxia, especially and with speech production, there's a certain amount of drill that needs to happen where you're just really training the, mo the neuro neural networks and the motor patterns of how to produce the speech sounds. And then you transition over into a more language-based activity. So the way I would do that is that's when I would have the iPad or the communication system out on the table and you show them how to say it on the communication system. And then you say, try to get them to say it with their speech. So you're kind of working on both simultaneously. Okay. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, because as parents too, we always are bombarded with opinions and like, oh, no, 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 don't use any of that stuff because they're never going to talk. If you let them use AAC all the time, or if you do PECs all the time, that, then that enables them to be able to just point and do things that way. And they're never going to speak. And we're like, well, <laughs> I mean, but I want to be able to communicate with my child. So yeah. like you said, if there's a, an ability to get language out of them and to the, for them to tell me they don't feel well or point to what they want to eat, I'm all about supporting that because you don't do that. Then the behaviors ensue because mm -hmm. they're frustrated because they can't get anyone to understand them. So, right, you know, right. and we just always more... feel bad. Yeah, or feel like we're doing anything right. Well, you know? please know you are doing more right than you give yourself credit for. <laughs> Absolutely. And you're not doing for any parent out there. You are not doing a disservice to your child if you're giving him a way to communicate and you're giving you're using augmentative communication. If anything, by using alternative communication while also promoting the speech production, you are teaching your child that when I talk, I can control my environment. Things mm -hmm. happen. I get what I want, which could improve their motivation to produce the speech even more, which that intrinsic motivation is really, really important as well. So it is really important, especially when a child is minimally verbal or nonverbal to really give them any way possible for them to express themselves and to communicate because it, it is not going to hinder their ability to produce speech later on. If anything, it will help it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's so it's, you guys are in high demand. I think even from when Skylar was diagnosed at three um, uh, until present day, the wait lists for speech therapists are so long because there's just mm -hmm. not enough of you guys to go around. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's, it's an unmet need that we have. We need more people going into speech therapy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, when you're talking about a child that has a very specific need of, I need a therapist who knows how to work with someone with nonverbal autism, that makes the pool even smaller because mm -hmm. not, not everyone does. And the ones that do, not all of them do private cases, <laughs> you know? So yeah, I understand. Well, so I'm, I'm assuming just kind of some of the examples that you've given that there isn't really a, a one size fits all approach to speech therapy. Like you mentioned, you know, there are some children who um, are starting to get some of their speech. And so you work some of the session on speech and then the other part on language. Is there, um, in the evaluation process, I guess, when you meet with a minimally verbal or nonverbal um, student, do you, are there things that you do differently with, with each child? I mean, I know each child is unique, but is there a different thought process you go through based on some of their, um, not symptoms, but just some of their, you know, delays, I guess? Yeah, every single child that comes on my caseload, whether they have autism or not, or apraxia or not, they all have a different diagnostic criteria, you know, mm -hmm. that we're going to look at. And there are a whole plethora of assessments that we have available for us to use as speech pathologists. 
And um, sometimes when we're dealing with a child who has higher support needs, like someone who has nonverbal autism, we kind of have to create our own um, our own assessment. The standardized test might not always be appropriate for a child like that, especially if they're very young. So we can do what we can with maybe a standardized assessment and see how they can do and then just qualify in the report, you know, if I was a, you were able to get a standardized score. But you, we look at um, the child's ability to perform oral motor movements, both with speech and without speech. We look at the child's ability to follow directions, the child's ability to make requests. Um, sometimes you can just get a language sample and, and see, and kind of assess what's going on from a language sample if you're not using a standardized assessment. I like to utilize the um, VB map. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Mm -hmm. It's the Verbal Behavior Milestones and Assessment Placement Program <laughs> is what it stands for. Um, and I like utilizing certain sections from that assessment to kind of get a good sense of where the, and that more so than assessment, that kind of gives you a snapshot of where the child's skills are now and where, and it gives a nice plan of where they need to go next. So I do try to incorporate portions of the VB map um, when I'm doing an assessment for a child who has um, higher support needs on the spectrum. But yeah, every, every, client that I assess has different needs. And, you know, even if I'm dealing with a, a middle school student who's in general education, but they have speech and language on their IEP, I need to look at, okay, are they having challenges with executive functioning skills? Are they having challenges with auditory processing? Are they having more expressive language challenges? And I pick certain assessments based on the feedback I'm getting from parents and teachers to kind of really suss out what's happening for that child. Well, kind of, I guess, on the other side of the coin, um, I think a lot of parents aren't sure of what to look for when they're seeking out a speech therapist for their mm -hmm. child. Um, we, I mean, in a sense, we have to technically interview all the therapists too, and make sure that they aren't somebody who's just doing the same thing with every kid and, you know, negating the fact that they all have unique learning, um, you know, delays and different things going on with them. Um, mm -hmm. Aside from an IEP situation where, you know, you don't really, it's, it's the speech therapists on staff at school. Right. Are there things that parents should focus on to ask the speech therapist, even the ones um, within the school system during an IEP or things um, that you would think are important that a speech therapist should be able to relay to the parents about their, their methods? So are you asking specifically for a child with autism? Yeah, or? yeah, it's just, you know, cause we don't, I don't know anything about therapies. Mm -hmm. So when, as a parent, when I'm picking, um, either I'm going through a pick list of um, therapists that are available um, to work with my child, mm -hmm. or um, if it's someone that's just assigned to our case or whatever. Um, I like to observe at least the first session or the first couple of sessions and, and mm -hmm. ask questions and, you know, kind of like we said, at the beginning update the therapist on my child's level at this point and where I see some of the deficiencies are and things to work on. And mm -hmm. I just always, I never know if I'm getting a therapist that's all in or that has a lot of experience dealing with like a nonverbal um, autistic child like mine, or yeah. I just am never sure what I should be asking or, you know, what type of follow-up they should be giving me. Right. That kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a hard question to answer generally because mm -hmm. it really does depend on the specific needs of your child. So for a child that is on the spectrum and ha is minimally verbal, you, I, you could ask, do you have experience in mm -hmm. working with, a, do you have experience working with children with autism? Because that in and of itself is a different skill set as a speech pathologist than, than a, someone who has spent the bulk of their career working in the school system and basically working with 
gen ed kids that Mm -hmm. get speech on the side, you know, it's just, it's different. Like I have very specialized training in different, many, many different therapy protocols to use for children with autism. So just saying, you know, what's your experience in working with children with autism? What, is there a specific methodology you use when working with, with a child with autism? Um, do you have experience in working with children who are nonverbal? Um, you can ask, what is your experience with augmentative communication? Because these are the skills that a therapist really needs to have to bring a child with autism. And that's not to say that if a, if a therapist doesn't have experience, that they aren't a good therapist mm-hmm. yep. or that they can't do their due diligence as they should to get the training that they need to get to help your child. Mm-hmm. So that could be something you, they, if they say, uh, no, I don't, then you could say, okay, are you willing to take some continuing education credits on this topic so that um, you can help my child a little more efficiently? Because we have to take a certain number of CEUs every year anyway to maintain mm-hmm. our licensure. So that could be something you could ask, like you could even as a parent, maybe do some research as to like some conferences that um, for nonverbal, for therapists, for nonverbal autism or something and say, hey, I found this conference coming up. Would you be willing to attend it and let me know what you learn or whatever? Um, So that is something that you could also, you could also ask. Yeah, no, that, that answers it perfectly. Yeah. Okay. I good. mean, we just, I don't ever want to insult anyone like sure. at an IEP or whatever in a, in a speech therapist that works for the school is sitting in there. Um, but I do want to know those questions. If they, if they're a brand new um, therapist that just graduated from college, I'm sure they have incredible new ideas and fresh ideas, um, but they don't maybe have a lot of experience working clinically with anyone because they, mm-hmm. you know, just graduated or whatever. So I just always like to, I mean, I do that when I interview people to work for me and, you know, for my job and stuff like that. So I just, anyone that's dealing with my precious cargo, my precious child, I want to make sure it's not an hour wasted where he's getting nothing out of it and sure. he hates going. And then his behaviors go up because he's miserable. Um, and, you know, mm-hmm. I just kind of would like to nip that in the bud in the very beginning, but yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I would say you might want to even rather than asking like at the IEP table, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe have like a phone conversation mm-hmm. with the therapist at the beginning of the school year. And, um, it's, I think it's really important that it comes from a place of like, let's, how can we collaborate together to help my son? Cause I think that's when any person is going to be more receptive to anybody. Absolutely. Um, and because I have had parents that kind of come in guns blazing oh, sometimes. Yeah. That never <laughs> and works. <laughs> as, and as the speech therapist, sometimes we do become like the representative of why your child isn't, you know, why the child isn't speaking. So just keeping in mind that the speech therapist is there to help you. Yeah. And I'm sure that any speech therapist you talk to, if you say like, hey, are you willing to, you know, learn more about this topic with me? They most likely will say yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that kind of leads into my other question, which (laughs) I feel like I'm asking a lot of hard questions today. I'm just so curious about this field of study. Uh, A lot of my friends from college um, are SLPs ironically. So, um, we talk quite a bit, but, um, you know, schooling and and college curriculum and all that stuff is completely different than clinical experience. And now that you've been doing this for 15 plus years, and you have a lot of experience with this specialized population Mm -hmm. of autistics and with apraxia and all of that, um, what have been some of the things that you have learned that are completely different than maybe what you expected, maybe even some success stories um, with children and that you've worked with that you were like kind of skeptical at first, like they just weren't making much progress. And now all of a sudden they're, you know, miles above where they were. Mm-hmm. Um, well, first, I think that that's, that might be like two different questions, but uh, so first, I think one of the things that my biggest lesson as a speech pathologist has been the, the importance of pausing in therapy sessions and like not talking (laughs) 
as the mm -hmm. speech therapist, because uh, a lot of speech therapists, I'm sure you know SLPs, they're very talkative. <laughs> and I used to, in the beginning of my career, fill a lot of the therapy space with my own talking. And it wasn't until I learned about a um, methodology called relationship development intervention, which I love as an intervention for children with, with autism, um, that I learned the value and the importance of pausing. And when you pause and give that the child room to think and process and respond, really some amazing things come out. And that also helps prevent a child from becoming prompt dependent as well. And I think if you've come from like an ABA or a verbal behavior background, the tendency is to prompt, 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 prompt. And I think it's important to, yes, maybe initially we need to do that prompting, but then at a certain point, we need to fade back on that and pause and give the, the child or the individual you're working with that time and space to see what they can do without your support and how valuable that is and how much that really does improve the, the child or the individual I'm working with, their ability to initiate for themselves and to come up with some novel or some spontaneous communication that you didn't expect because they have to problem solve at that mm -hmm. point. I love that because we yeah. do know that they understand everything that we're asking. It's just the time to process and to respond in their way takes so much longer. Mm -hmm. So yeah, being an extrovert, yeah. it's hard to not <laughs> just go. Did you understand what I mean? Let me re-ask it. Yeah. And I think just we as humans are uncomfortable with silence when oh, we're in yeah. a social interaction with another individual, you mm -hmm. know? So our tendency is to fill that silence. And I do see many very well-meaning parents just over prompting their child. And then what it just doesn't give the child the ability to rise to the occasion because they just need more time and they need more space. Um, and I think I do think that some of that comes from a lot of families coming from ABA and VB backgrounds where you're taught to prompt, 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 you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But so pausing has been my biggest lesson as a speech therapist. And um, in terms of my, my biggest success stories, I think it has been, um, you know, I guess the other thing too is in coming up with this success story, I'm realizing the other thing I've learned is the importance of involving the child's whole body into therapy. What yeah. I, I, my coworkers, when I worked at the school used to say that I was an honorary OT because I was constantly in their OT room doing therapy sessions because my students on the spectrum just were more focused and better able to communicate when their sensory needs were being met. And that is something that I think a lot, a lot of speech therapists don't know about. And just because that's not what we're taught in school. And I think I just had a natural intuition for it. So keeping things, um, so first and foremost, if a child walks through my therapy room door and they are dysregulated, I'm not working on their IEP goals. My goal at that point in time is to get that child regulated. Mm -hmm. And I think that that, is a very big lesson that that many people could could benefit from and that it's not a wasted session if he comes into my speech room and all the bulk of our session is focused on giving him sensory input or bouncing on the ball while I'm giving him like the b -b -b model or whatever mm -hmm. and that's the bulk of what we do it's not a wasted session if I bring him back to classroom and he's a much more regulated child and we'll have a better day mm -hmm. So I think that's another huge lesson is really like, we can't just treat individual parts of a person. We have to treat the whole person. Yeah. We've just learned that recently in the last couple of years, just the body regulation dictates everything. There is no mm -hmm. way that Skylar could spell or he can do any of this other stuff when his yes. body is like not having it. Yeah. So once we calm that down and we do OT, our, our uh, spelling therapist actually is an OT who now is a spelling therapist and it, they do go hand in hand. And yeah. she's taught us so much about that part that yeah. I didn't really realize. 
yeah. that's a big part of my therapy system that I've done with my nonverbal children when I've taught them to speak. And it's a big part of nonverbal no more is I have what's called the perfect speech practice routine in the course, but the very first part is about is warm up body. That's the very first thing we do. And it's about getting the child or the individual to what's called an optimal level of arousal. And the optimal level of arousal is the, when your body is regulated so that you can pay attention so that you can learn. If like, if you think about it, if you're ever in um, a situation where you're in a freezing cold room and you have to learn, like if you're in a, for some reason, every time you go to a conference, it's freezing cold, right? Mm -hmm. And you forgot your sweater. You're not focusing on what the, the person, the lecturer is saying at the front of the room. You're focusing on when is this over because I'm freezing and I mm -hmm. need to get out of here. And we, so you kind of bring that to your mind. That's what many of our kids are dealing with almost all the time every day in, mm -hmm. their sen in their sensory system. And so getting a child to their optimal level of arousal is so important because then they can actually put their energy and their focus on controlling their mouth to produce speech sounds mm -hmm. or to learn the new vocabulary word that you're teaching them or to do spelling or whatever it is that you want them to learn. Yeah. So that's been a big part of my success with my students is keeping things movement oriented and sensory friendly. Well, I can see why they enjoy therapy sessions with you and they're fun because <laughs> you, you know, you really are looking beyond what your, you know, label is as a speech therapist and everything doesn't always have to be focused on their mouth and verbalizing and doing those things. If you are in tune to the student themselves and can pick up all these other idiosyncrasies they have going on. I think it's so much more successful for everybody involved. So yeah, my main priority when I have a session with a, with a child with autism is to keep them as socially connected to me as possible for as much of the session as possible. Mm -hmm. And when I do that, then the other stuff kind of happens more easily and more naturally. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Well, I, I, I cannot be surprised at all that you've been very successful. And, um, I encourage parents listening to check out some of your, um, scheduling templates and motivation maps and some other things that you have some free templates on your website. I'll link yes. up your website too, um, to MindShaper okay. SLP and your social yes. media. So people yes, can and find I you. also would like to offer your podcast listeners 10% off nonverbal no more. Oh, yay. So, yeah. So I can, do you want me to say what the, the website is now? Sure. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and I'll put it in the show notes too. Okay. It's bit, B-I-T dot L-Y slash nonverbal no more 10. Perfect. Yeah. And then send me that link and I'll add it in the show notes and I'll add it to um, the postings as well. So that's Thanks. a nice offer. Thank you for that. Of and thank you pleasure. so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It was nice to meet you. Take you care. Too, Lori. Bye. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Living the Sky Life and we'll tune in for the next episode coming soon. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the Living the Sky Life podcast within Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Play, so you'll receive alerts when new episodes are released. Subscribing is the best way to ensure you don't miss a single episode. If you like what you hear, be sure to select the five-star rating, provide feedback, and share Living the Sky Life with others. Thanks again for listening.